0: Well, hello everyone. My name is Sarah, I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. Now, in the last few weeks, we have covered a good chunk of Romans 8, and I'd like to use an illustration to get a grasp of where we are. So let's put ourselves in the shoes of a slave in ancient Rome. You are a slave to your master. You're unable to free yourself. Perhaps you wore a tag like this one. The Latin inscription reads, hold me lest I flee and return me to my master Viventius on the estate of Callistus. Maybe you were born into slavery or captured in war. Maybe your debts were too great and you had to sell yourself. However you got here, your life is just counting the days until you're released by death. You have no hope of freedom. But then, one day, the unbelievable happens. A powerful and wealthy man rides by and gives a bag of gold to your master, paying for your freedom. This is incredible. You didn't do anything to earn or deserve it, and you couldn't have hoped for it. Only someone of great power could orchestrate such a miraculous release from slavery. And as you watch your redeemer ride into the distance, you realize that you have the chance at a new life. That could be the movie inspired by Romans 8, 1 through 13. But then we keep reading, and in the next few verses, there's another twist in the story. Let's start in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God, Are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So let's edit our illustration. It's not just any wealthy and powerful man, it's the emperor. And after he pays for your release, he doesn't just ride off into the sunset, rather he takes you with him. He writes you into his will as his adopted son and heir. And so not only have you been set free, but you've got a family, wow. I mean, that's the kind of rags to riches story we like to dream of. Like, Like King Charles calling you up and saying he's had enough of the William and Harry drama, so he's adopting you, putting you ahead of them in the succession planning. We feel like we only see these kinds of stories on the big screen. But it is true that adoption played a significant role in ancient Rome. Remember that Rome was once a republic, but then a guy named Julius Caesar came and came to power. He declared himself dictator for life and it was the dawn of the Roman Empire. Now he was killed on the Ides of March. Remember that whole et tu, Brute? But his heir would step into his shoes after defeating his opponents. And interestingly, his heir was not his own son. It was his adopted grandnephew, Octavian. And it was Octavian who became Caesar Augustus, the emperor of the Roman Empire when Christ was born. Now, after Julius Caesar was assassinated, he was deified. He was declared to be a god. So during Octavian's reign as emperor, all the coins were engraved with the words, son of a god. And later the Emperor Nero, he reigned when Paul was actually writing this letter, he probably had Paul killed. Nero himself was an adopted son. His coin said, son of the greatest of gods. And so Roman elites, they used adoption to establish a successor who would carry on the family name and preserve their power. And so it made adoption a coveted status in the Roman Empire. Adoption allowed you to cancel your old debts and receive a new name, a new estate, a new family tree, a new cult. That just means that adopted sons stepped into the religious rites of that family, whatever gods and goddesses they favored and rituals they performed. It also meant that the adopted son gained new obligations. He needed to both honor and please his adopted father. Now, why bother going into all of that? Remember that all of scripture was written in a particular time and place to a particular group of people, living in a particular culture, and all of this political maneuvering and the legal aspects of adoption would have been known and understood by Paul's audience. Remember, his letter is written to Christians living in the center of the empire, at the very heart of emperor worship. Roman Christians knew that slavery was an established part of the social and economic structure and that adoption was a way to maintain power and establish a legacy. And so here in chapter eight, Paul makes a point of not only outlining the freedom that we have in Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit in us, we're no longer slaves to sin, but here he also takes it a step, a big step further, and saying that not only are we free, but we are also adopted. Last week we focused on the if then statements of Romans 8, 9 through 13, and today we're going to start with another one. If the Spirit is leading you, then you are an adopted child of God. It's our big idea today. We desperately need the Holy Spirit living in us and through us so that we can live as children of God. So let's go ahead and read the entire passage here, Romans 8, verses 14 through 21. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So not only are we being led by the spirit to a new way of living that pleases God, but we're being led as sons and daughters Now Paul uses the word sons here in verses 14 and 15, but I don't think he's being exclusive because he clearly uses the inclusive word children in the very next verses. So why use sons at all? Why not start with children? Does it even matter? Well, words matter. Biblical authors were very intentional with their words, and so Paul must be using sons on purpose before switching to children. Figure that out. We're gonna look back at the very beginning of the letter where Paul introduces his ministry and his calling, and he says this in chapter one of Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, who is was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Twice here, Paul's acknowledging that Jesus is the son of God. And in our passage, Paul's connecting our status as sons and daughters to the sonship of Christ. And at the same time, Paul's continuing in Jesus' footsteps by subverting the male-dominated culture and taking this masculine-only institution of adoption and showing believers that in Christ, God does not distinguish between Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, and giving honor. Remember Peter's first sermon in Acts two, he quotes the Old Testament prophet Joel when he says, "'I will pour out my spirit on all people. "'Your sons and daughters will prophesy.'" This is revolutionary stuff. It means that we can amend our opening illustration even further and picture the emperor coming and buying freedom for a female slave and adopting her as his heir. I mean, that's a really big deal. Great Britain only changed their succession laws in 2011 so that the eldest daughter would be queen ahead of a younger brother. Now, I'm not championing some movement of women ahead of men, of course not. That's not what Paul's suggesting either. He's merely leaning into what God had established in the garden before the fall. In the image of God, both man and woman were created. Sin entered the world, humanity's done a royal job of relegating women to the background, to something less than a man. But throughout Scripture, Old Testament, and New, God reveals a better way, consistently affirming women and conferring on them great honor as daughters. We could say a lot more on that, but for now, let's just close that thought with this. Freedom in Christ and adoption into the family God is available to all men and all women of every tribe, language, people, and nation. Amen to that. Now, before we get further into this passage, let me emphasize the phrase that we see in verse 15. You have received the spirit of adoption. Your adoption is entirely based on the action of the father. Tim Keller says you don't win a father and you don't negotiate for a parent. And like our illustration earlier, you had no means by which you could purchase your own freedom and absolutely no right or entitlement to be called a son or daughter. Jesus paid the full cost to free you from sin and the Father has freely given and you the child, you do nothing but receive. Does that seem too easy? (laughs) Well, praise God it is. Since we're helpless and hopeless without him, faith and trust in his grace and mercy are all we've got. And it's why we desperately need the Holy Spirit living in us and through us so that we can live as children of God. Now, if you and I are adopted children, what exactly does that mean? Well, that's what we're going to do with the rest of our time. We're going to comb through this passage of Romans 8 and look at three implications of our adoption. And so first, as adopted sons and daughters, we share in his inheritance. Verses 15 through 17 again. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. What we find right there is an intimate connection of sons and daughters to their father. And that intimacy is at the heart of Paul's exclamation, Abba. This word's first used, we first see it in Mark as Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before his death. And at the point that Paul wrote this letter, the early church, they would have known the testimonies of the disciples concerning Jesus' final days. They would have understood this cry of adopted children to have been the cry of the son to the father on behalf of all the men and women who would also be counted as sons and daughters. In Galatians 4, 6 and 7, Paul writes to the church, "'And because you are sons, "'God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, "'crying, Abba, Father.'" So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So if a son, if a daughter, then an heir. There's an inheritance waiting for you and for me and for all those who believe. So what's included, what's implied in this inheritance? Well, there's a few things. First, some really good stuff, like you're an heir with Christ of eternal life. That's eternity in the presence of God. But it goes beyond that because That's like that not-yet inheritance that we're longing and waiting for, but there's also a now portion to this inheritance. I mean, if the emperor comes along and he adopts you, there's probably some perks for you now. You're not just waiting for him to pass away. So what do we inherit right now? Well, Paul says that though we are adopted, we take on a family likeness. The goal of our adoption is to be conformed to the likeness of his son. This isn't so much a physical likeness as it is a taking on of the character and the mind of Christ. A couple weeks ago, Derek preached about the renewal of our mind, and last week we talked about the good fruit that the Holy Spirit wants to grow in your life. And so a life lived in the Spirit of God will be a life that looks increasingly more and more like Jesus Christ, the Son. It's a significant reason why you and I should never be very far from the Gospels as we're reading through the scriptures. Because in the Gospels we see Jesus live and walk and talk and teach from this posture of humble servant. And that's the family likeness we want the world to see when they look at the Christian family tree. And so is this humility, does it, can they see Christ in our lives? Okay, there's more to our inheritance. We've got eternal life and we've got a family likeness. And we also inherit discipline. Yikes, that's not a favorite, right? But the author of Hebrews tells us, starting in chapter 12, verse 11, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so in order to acquire this family likeness to Christ the Son, we must submit ourselves to the Father's discipline. His Spirit convicts us of our sin, and we must humble ourselves in repentance. Remember, sin's not the controlling force within you, but it's still waging war against you from the outside. And so when we're weak and when we give in to pride or when we're distracted, we give in to temptation. It's like a child who sneaks candy before dinner. We need discipline and correction. And because he's a good father, he's gonna guide us toward what is right and true and good. Often, this requires confession to those we've harmed. Sometimes, the natural consequences of our sin are unavoidable, always. He is gracious to forgive us and teach us. He's pruning off that dead stuff, those dead branches, so that new fruit can grow. And listen, in your position as a son or daughter, you can't lose your inheritance. Yes, you're gonna continue to wage war against sin, and you're gonna lose some battles every day, but your position in God's family is secure. And that's another benefit of your inheritance, assurance. Discipline is part of a healthy family dynamic but my kids aren't afraid that I'm going to kick them out every time they get sassy. And as a child of God, you can be sure that he will never break off the relationship. Listen to verse 16 again. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And listen, when God's chosen people, the Israelites were experiencing the just punishment for breaking the law and not keeping the covenant, even then God said to them in Isaiah 43, but now says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. Even as he's disciplining them with exile, he told them not to be afraid. He'd be with them. For us, for New Covenant Christians, he has literally put his spirit in us. And so you are a spirit-filled child of God and you can be sure and certain of that. Guard against any doubt of that. For insecurity, what that's gonna do, it's gonna lead you to some sort of performance-based religion. Tim Keller says it's acting as if God's blessing is maintained or increased by our work. But remember, Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's astonishing amount of meaning implied in this idea of being a son or a daughter an heir. Eternal life, a family likeness, discipline, assurance, and underlining all of that. Can I remind you what's implied in all of this talk of adoption and inheritance? The implication is that you are a recipient of the unconditional, faithful, eternal love of God. He loves you. He loves you, he loves you. And it's from that place, from the place of a child beloved by their father, from a place of deep spiritual and emotional security, that the Holy Spirit in you leads you to cry out, Abba, Father. And so the first implication of our adoption is that we share in his inheritance. And the second is that we share in his suffering. And so look at verses 17 and 18 again. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, this is definitely not our favorite part, but it is our reality. And somehow, somehow we can know in our minds that the world is broken and that things are not as they should be, that every good thing here is a shadow of what's meant to be. Somehow we can know all that, But we can still get really offended when God lets us experience all the hard things. When we suffer, when someone we love suffers, when bad days come out of nowhere, when bad things happen to good people. Somehow we forget that sin has consequences, big and small. Somehow we forget that life isn't fair. Somehow we forget that Jesus emphatically told his disciples as he prepared them for his departure that in this world you will have tribulation. The NIV says troubles. The New Living Translation says trials and sorrows. Christ himself had to endure the cross. James, Paul, Peter, many more of the early disciples died as martyrs. In John's vision in the book of Revelation, he describes somehow seeing the souls of Christians who'd be killed because of their testimony. And that implies that Christians will suffer for their faith. And throughout the history of the church until today, Christians around the world experience real and violent persecution. Now, that's not our lived reality here in this country. But we need to endure the day-to-day hardships with an understanding that it is part of living in a world broken by sin. It's part of living as exiles, because that's what we're doing. Our time in this world is a time of exile. Ever since Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, humanity has been in exile. And one day, Jesus will return and he will establish his eternal rule and reign, and all things will be made new. But in the meantime, in the not yet, we experience suffering. And Paul's language here suggests that he has in view the whole gamut of suffering, persecution, as well as just the frustration of life in a sinful world. The sickness, the poverty, the grief, the death. And Paul's thought about it, he's considered it, he's counted the cost and he's decided that the inheritance that we're waiting for, the glory to be revealed at the end of this path is worth all the trouble experienced along the way. Paul is following the footsteps of Christ And understood that when he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus really did mean that his followers would experience suffering. And Paul seems to count it as a blessing to suffer as Jesus did. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. then we can't explain or escape hardship and suffering. But if we know that this world is not our true home, and if we know that we are heirs of a greater kingdom, if we know that the spirit is alive in us, then we know that suffering is not the final word. Hope, that's the hallmark of the Christian life. Hope in the face of every bad day. And so the first two implications of our adoption are that we share in his inheritance and that we share in his suffering. And the third implication as sons and daughters is that we share in his glory. So picking up again in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation itself was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The hope of glory. This is how we endure the world. We don't pretend everything is sunshine and roses. We don't just put on a happy face. We don't grin and bear it. Rather, we feel all the sorrows and hurts and betrayals and anger and pain, and we do it with our hope firmly planted in glory. Paul writes just a couple of chapters before this, In Romans 5, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. I mean, sometimes Paul sounds like a crazy man. He's rejoicing in his suffering. Why? How? Because he's rejoicing in hope. He endures suffering, and he sees his character being made more and more into the likeness of Christ, that family likeness. And beyond that, he sees the hope of a future glory. And it's a hope that's sure and certain. A hope that's been poured into our hearts by God's love through the Holy Spirit. We desperately need the Holy Spirit living in and through us, so we can live as children of God. And children, will children share in his glory? It's a thread that runs all through Paul's letter to the Romans. In chapter 1, verse 23, Paul's remind us that God's glory is seen in the splendor of creation. In 2.7, he says, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. In six four, the glory of God is described as the power of God that raised Christ from the dead, and here in chapter eight, glory points forward to our resurrection, our setting free from death, being alive in the Spirit. Now, I don't want to rush by the end of this section here at the end, uh, verse twenty and twenty one of chapter eight. It's always intrigued me that Paul emphasizes our suffering and our longing for glory by pointing out that it's not just us that. Creation itself is eagerly waiting for Christ's return and for us to be glorified. I mean, creation is longing to be whole again. Creation is suffering from humanity's fallen and sinful nature. One theologian wrote that creation is the innocent bystander caught up in the consequences of our rebellion. So natural disasters weren't meant to destroy God's good creation. Animals weren't meant to hurt other animals. Our side-by-side existence with God's created world, it was meant to be peaceful, not fraught with death and violence and fear. And here, interestingly enough, Paul uses the word futility to describe the state of creation. Interestingly, it's the Greek word that translates the Hebrew word vanity. Do you remember where vanity comes from? It's from Ecclesiastes. Vanity is that hevel, that meaningless vapor of existence. And so creation is caught in this vicious vicious cycle of meaningless, meaningless. Like us, creation's broken. It can't accomplish the purpose for which it was created. And so what's it doing right now? Well, it's waiting with eager longing for our glorification. For when Christ returns and we receive our resurrected glorified bodies, creation itself is also going to be set free from decay. So our freedom and our glory means freedom and glory for all creation. One scholar wrote that what we hear and see in creation is the symphony of nature played in a minor key, but with the expectation of a glorious finale. Now, before we wrap this up, I just want to comment for a second on the Roman propaganda at this time. When Paul wrote this letter, if they had had mainstream media or Facebook or Twitter, this would have been the prevailing message coming from Rome, from the empire. You would have been hearing, you're experiencing the new golden age. The emperor has ushered in the age of peace for man and for earth. Look around, behold the greatness of this son of the gods. We know this because they left records, monuments, poetry, political propaganda, all declaring this golden age, thanks to the empire. Now the declaration of a golden age didn't mean it actually was, babies were still being left exposed overnight, people were still enslaved, violence was still rampant, rebellion was in the air. I mean gladiatorial games revealed the bloodlust of a so-called peaceful people. So we look back on this era of history and laugh to hear it described as a golden age because golden, peaceful, for whom exactly? Certainly not for the slave or the woman or the infant or the Christian or creation. But then hasn't the same thing happened throughout history? Wasn't the enlightenment our golden age? Wasn't industrialization ushering in a new dawn? Isn't this new era of technological advancement ushering in a golden age for humanity of progress? That's what marketers and politicians and CEOs would like us to think, vote for me, buy this, invest over here, and all that noise and clamor coming at us tempts us to look here for hope, to seek glory here, to find some meaning here, and to believe that something here should and could Make everything better and bright and new and good. But it isn't any for anything here that creation is waiting eagerly. And it's not here that our glory will be found. There's no hope, there's no peace, there's no restoration, no healing to be found here. And the spirit that fills you knows that. The spirit that raised Christ from the dead wants to raise your hopes far beyond here. You're more than just a man or woman here, you're more than a teacher, an accountant, or more than a caregiver or bus driver, you're more than a salesperson or a carpenter, you're a son, you're a daughter of God. And you desperately need the Holy Spirit living in and through you so you can live as his child. Remember what Nero's coin said? Son of the greatest of gods. Well. The Spirit living in you declares to the Father through the work of Jesus Christ that you are son of the risen King. You are daughter of the coming King. Church, we are children of the greatest of God's. Therefore, we're going to stand confident in our inheritance. We're going to be rejoicing and enduring even in suffering, all the while looking forward with hope for the glory that will be revealed to us. So to close today, I just wanna encourage you with two next steps. First, as we've mentioned throughout this series, I encourage you to choose a portion of Romans 8 to memorize. We've been talking about a lot. We know it's hard. We also know it's worth it. I've been working on Romans 8, 18 through 39 using some of the tips and the apps found in the study book. I recommend those. My daughter's been helping me review. I talk to myself while I'm getting ready in the morning, and I'm, I'm really excited to have words of hope and life seared into my heart and mind. The second next step is that one of the sweetest gifts of a, as a mom is receiving letters from my children. Sometimes they're confessions, like, I'm sorry, mom. Other times they're just expressions of love, like, you're the best. Once in a while, they express doubt about my parenting and discipline, like, I don't like it when you made me go to my room today. Still. I tre- treasure every little note. I'm so thankful they want to communicate with me. Now, if a broken mom like me delights in a child's letters, how much more does our Father in Heaven delight in our communication with Him? Many of us will pause for prayer with heads bowed, but have we ever thought about writing a letter to our Abba Father? That's where we're going to take a moment to start right now. Your host's going to come and lead you to write a letter to God. Your Father can't wait to hear from you.